in the last couple of weeks, we've been wrestling together with the letter of James. And two weeks ago, Ramon kicked us off by challenging us to find a message of hopefulness in James amidst all the, the struggle. Becky last week encouraged us to open ourselves up and let James speak to our lives where we're at. And this week I get to talk about one of my favorite passages in James. But before we do, I want to take a moment to frame our discussion. On the screen is a text message between me and my husband. So I am, of course, the blue, and he is the gray. Uh, And for those of you not fluent in emoticon, I say, I love you. He replies, yeah, sad face. So why do I share this with you? Because context is important. Before we wrestle with a specific passage from James, I want us to take a step back and talk a little bit about the context. As Pastor Ramon discussed a couple weeks ago, James is a letter most often ascribed to Jesus' brother, who after seeing the resurrected Jesus became a prominent leader, particularly in Jewish Christian communities. If we back up even one more step, it's important to remind ourselves that although we often dissect the Bible as one book given to us, that it's actually a collection of writings from different authors. In particular, James is a letter. So to fully understand its meaning, we have to understand the intended audience. James writes a general letter to a community of Jewish people following Jesus. His thoughts are written for the Christian community, meaning that the reader has already made the choice to follow Jesus and who he is. This is important because James, as a letter, is often seen to be at conflict with the abundant message of grace and salvation through faith. And in fact, we often set up two juggernauts of faith, Paul and James as polar opposites. Paul, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, tells us that it's by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, but is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. In contrast, James's letter to the Jewish community says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, Paul is providing a reminder to the church in Ephesus, that no one is good enough on their own, and that God's grace is wholly sufficient. And in fact, the only means, salvation. We can't earn it, we can't win it, and we don't deserve it. Paul's context that he's writing to is a young church in a thriving port city with people traveling from all over the world. Likely, this was a well-educated community with means. Paul is reminding them that the worldly definition of success that they are barraged with every day can never be enough. And in many ways, Paul is also focused on how we see those outside of the church, how we welcome people into the church. James's letter, in contrast, is internal. It's focused on people in the church who, in some ways, may have taken Paul's words too literally. I could imagine that James is writing to address those who are saying, yeah, yeah, I believe. Or I have faith in God, what more do you want from me? People who say I have faith, but whose actions have never changed to reflect that faith. Some of you might know someone like this or 
something came to mind. We have these people still today. I remember in high school, there was a Christian club on campus. And in some ways, Christianity had become a fad. See, all the cool kids were signing on. It wasn't a predominantly Christian community. Um, but it became cool all of a sudden. Uh, the kids like me that grew up in church all of a sudden were like de facto in the popular group. Um, but I imagine the letter James wrote was directed at them. See, because while people were professing a faith, nothing was changing. The popularity hierarchy was remaining in place, and while people would provide pithy bumper sticker statements during the week, all bets were off when the weekend hit. Christian faith became an odd riff in my community. I remember a peer one time approaching someone. Uh, she herself had newly uh, called herself a Christian, but then she looked at her friend and said, I don't know how you can't believe. Your immorality, that's a bad influence in my life. We can't be friends anymore. And in my mind, it's like, you were there three days ago. How can you not comprehend what it might be to ask these questions or to doubt? In fact, as one of the few kids who actually grew up in church, I was often challenged by this new group for having non-Christian friends. Now, this bothered me for a lot of reasons, but but two in particular. First and foremost, the way people were treating others that did not identify as Christian was possibly the most unchristlike behavior I could imagine. I had to constantly remind people that Jesus didn't hang out with Christians either. Second, this fad faith was damaging to non-Christians. See, the same people who on campus would deride what they considered immoral behavior and tell people they need to be nice and love were the same people doing that derided behavior and excluding people over the weekends. It honestly broke my heart. But that's kind of the point, right? When we wear a moniker and say we're a follower of Jesus or a Christian, we represent our faith. I imagine this was a bit like James's context when he penned What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? See, if we have faith, if we are saying that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and we are called to live out God's calling for our life, then that's going to change our actions. Context matters to fully understand what we are meant to walk away with from James' letter. Without context for either Paul or James, we become extreme. See, James can be used to justify salvation by works and to allow for a legalistic Christianity. Paul can be used to justify a passive faith where anything goes without any need for action. But only if we don't bother contextualizing their message and their purpose. Because when we see things in context, we can understand the true meaning, just like the text between Richard and me. See, I'm fairly certain his, yeah, sad face was just a poorly timed response to my prior text. But I'm sure you've all had experiences like this, where an email, or I'm choosing to believe that, um, (laughs) better for our marriage, but we've had these moments, right, where an email or a text out of context just sounds much worse than it really ever was. We intuitively understand that we need the whole picture to understand the communication. 
So why would we settle for any less when we study the communications of the early church leaders like James? Now, with that very long aside into context in mind, we want to dive into James 3. And I want to read it together first. James writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. I will note that this part of James is cited frequently to me when people are telling me they don't want to go into ministry. But James continues, When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of a body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Now here James is providing us some beautiful imagery to help us understand the impact of what we say and how far it can reach. We'll come back to this, but... Here, James is helping his readers wrestle and connect to this point of something so small as a word or a statement. How could that have a big impact? Now, I suppose today we might talk about the impact of a viral video or a tweet. Now, I was corrected earlier. Apparently, I am not technologically savvy. I still think Twitter has 140 characters, but I was kindly informed by the younger people and my husband, that uh, it's 280 now. Um, So either way, even the expanded 280 characters can have such a drastic impact, right? That, That those words can literally change policy, change how people think, start a revolution. As we continue to read in James, he writes all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives? Or a grapevine bear figs. Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Now, these last examples are, are helping us really understand that we can't separate the use of our tongue, so to say. Right? As someone who really liked labs whenever I was younger and then avoided science later in my life, I do remember those moments when we combined two solutions. And here, this is exactly what's happening, right? When you put salt water in fresh water, it's just all salt water. You can't separate out the fresh water anymore. So how many of you have heard of the concept of church gossip? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, because we know it would just start more of it. But it's definitely a universal in churches. Everyone understands their form of church gossip. I mean, even this comic strip from After Even plays on this idea. 
lamenting that the only way to avoid gossip is only having two people in the world. In fact, if you just type in church gossip comics, you'll get too many to review. But the reality is, as James writes eloquently, that what we say matters. How we use our tongue matters. And this is all I want to focus on today, about what we say. Because when we profess that we believe certain things, what we say should line up with what we profess to believe. See, while church gossip as a meme can be funny, it's important that we understand that the words that we use shape our attitude towards those we are called to love. Of course, this goes far beyond just what is said in church. Now, as many of you know, my full-time job is as a lawyer. But before that, I was a teacher. And one of the most important lessons I learned as a teacher was the power of words and that how we talk about people shapes how we see them. This can be seen in the classroom when we label kids a bad kid or a trouble child. See, because when we label them a bad kid or say they're a trouble child, then we're less likely to give them second chances. We're less likely to try and seek out and understand why they made certain choices, and more likely just to assume that their intent was bad from the start. So, when I helped to found the Memelodi Initiative, which was an after-school program in South Africa, I took this, and this was core to how we talked about engaging with youth. It's, and so we drilled in this idea, right? And this was a uh, ministry-based education program. And we drilled in the idea that there aren't bad kids. There's just sometimes bad actions. And more importantly, we drilled into both our volunteers and teachers and our students the concept that they're capable, right? We, we always have this thing, learn, grow, dream, achieve. And we talked about kids being able to learn anything given the right resources, that kids deserve a place to grow emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually, that kids should be permitted to dream big and can achieve anything. And we did that because when we change how we talk about people, we change how we treat people. Just as James talked about, the way we label, categorize, or dictate the existence of someone is like a horse bit indicative of the direction we will head when we engage with that person. When we call someone annoying, it shouldn't surprise you that you will find them annoying much quicker. When we label someone an outsider, we will more likely take actions that exclude them. And when we speak about people in a way that demeans or lessens them, we tend to treat them consistent with the value our words have assigned to them. Now, Jesus demonstrates what it looks like to reframe how we speak about others we exclude. As an example, in Matthew 25, Jesus, when speaking to a crowd, places himself with those who are marginalized. He tells those listening that what is done for the least of these, right, what is done for the hungry, what is done for the thirsty, what is done for those in prison and those who are naked, that's done for him, for Jesus. He is elevating the way we look at those who society has has marginalized by by speaking into existence equality in their position. 
Earlier in his ministry, Jesus proclaimed that blessed are the poor, those that mourn, the meek, and the persecuted. See, Jesus' ministry is filled with times that through his words about marginalized groups, he demonstrated their value in his kingdom. He changed the narrative. Now, not only do words that we use shape our attitude towards those we're called to love, but they also shape the experience of those we're called to love. Now, returning to my teaching days, part of why I was so invested in teaching teachers how to speak about youth is that, honestly, more concerning to me than what teachers thought about children is what children thought about themselves. And the reality is what we said as teachers shaped how children understood their roles in a certain space. As an example, one of my young students, one time after yet another frustrating walk to program where he was again randomly stopped, he happened to live in a neighborhood that had um, high crime, and so he was frequently asked whether he was selling drugs. He wasn't. And whether he was really going to an after-school program, he was. And, and then they would say they hadn't heard of the program in this area. And in fairness, we had only been there for two years, but they never bothered to come by and check. Sure. This young man could have chosen to be involved in selling. Every day this young man chose a path that was different than some of the people around him, even some of his cousins, many of whom had joined local gangs for protection and belonging. But this day was different. Honestly, he just came in worn down and tired, exhausted. So he told me, if everyone thinks I'm a drug dealer anyways, why don't I just sell the drugs so at least I got the money? He didn't mean it. And he ended up on a full ride to university. But this, this is exactly what James is talking about, right? The the power of the tongue of those around him made this sixth grader feel like he was ready to give up on what he knew his potential was, what he knew his calling was, because everyone else around him told him he didn't belong. They told him he wasn't worthy of something else. And this one day in weakness, he started to believe it. But how much is this like the church when we create barriers for people to come into God's space? When we dictate what people should look like when they come to church, how they should act in church space, um, what they should be doing, right? Uh, When we speak about other people in a way that devalues their worth, People begin to believe it. Now, when we look at Jesus' ministry, the story of the woman at the well comes to mind. I just want to read a short section from it. John 4, 7 through 10, uh, if you're following along in your Bible. So when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How could you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now we're observing the internalization of the Samaritan woman being told that because she is a woman and because she is a Samaritan, she's not worthy. She reflects that in her comments to Jesus. 
But Jesus does something so beautiful here. He reminds her of her inherent worth. See, this is the model of how we should see and speak into lives. When people come to the table church, it's my sincerest hope that everyone who walks through that door feels welcome here, is seen, is heard. Unfortunately, I've had too many conversations with people looking for a church who seem to believe that they are too broken, that God couldn't possibly accept them. But when I dig into that, it's not because of words in the Bible or their experience with God, but it's words of people telling them they don't belong. So the words that we use shape our attitude towards those that we are called to love. And the words that we use shape the experience of those we are called to love. But also it's important for us to understand that words that we use shape our own understanding of God's view of us. Like the Samaritan woman, some of us talk about ourselves in ways that limit how big God is. For a long time, I did. Yes, I would say that God's grace is limitless, that God's love um, reaches to everyone regardless of what they've done. Yet, I still believed that somehow I was just too broken, too far from God, that I was the exception to grace. But I realized that by doing that, by denying the worth that God had endowed in me, I was limiting my faith. See, because faith requires action. If I profess that God was the I am of the Bible, then how dare I limit God's grace? We are told that we're made in the image of God. In fact, James cites that when he says that we are not to curse people because they are made in God's likeness. We are called God's children and promise that God loves us so abundantly that God would come down to earth for us. And yet some of us are holding on to baggage, to things we have done, to parts of who we are that we think are too broken for God, to hurts that weren't even caused by us. And even when we begin to reconcile with God, we use words that indicate our tepidness of faith. We talk about just making it, and that maybe God will let us eke through into his kingdom. Frankly, I see this too often in LGBTQ Christians, particularly from those who are from more traditionally conservative backgrounds. My own experience was one that required time and healing. When I finally came out, I knew God and I were great. Our relationship was strong, and in fact, there's no way I could have made it through that process without God's presence, without him holding me. But for years... And if I'm honest with myself, sometimes even today, I feel the need to apologize for my presence in church and in faith spaces. I feel guilty for complicating theology. I feel the need to justify my presence and existence, say that I was a model Christian otherwise, whatever that even means. See, if I were to offer a visualization of my relationship with the church, I imagined that God's love was a large tent and I just how snuck through the flaps and sat on the edge hoping no one noticed that I just made it in. However, as time went on, I realized the way that I spoke about my relationship with the church and my relationship with God 
actually started affecting my relationship with God. Go figure. I, you know, the, the feeling of need to apologize, the guilt, the need to justify myself, all were wedging in between the relationship that God and I had. And then I realized that I was diminishing God by thinking I could be so broken as to be too broken for him. See, my faith was not being put into action in my own life. This is where James is so powerful. Because if I believe that I am wonderfully and beautifully made in God's image, then I need to act in that way. My words need to align with that truth. My rudder has to be set in that direction. So I realized I had to begin verbalizing. I had to acknowledge truths that LGBTQ Christians were not in the margin, that we weren't just making it by, that we are part of the complex, diverse, beautiful, and powerful image of God, that we're not meant to be hiding in the corners of the tent, but to be throughout it, and sometimes even to be center stage, that we're not an error or a mistake, and instead that we have been part of the story all along, and we're meant to be. Every story is different. Many of you may be still holding on to that too broken moment. Sometimes these are things that are beautiful parts of who we are that have been transformed into something we feel guilty or shame about. Our looks, our physical ability, our gender, race, or socioeconomic status, our mental health, a trauma we experienced, things that have been part of our story for a long time. Sometimes our baggage is something that's hurting us, an addiction, past or frankly even present behaviors that just are not in line with who God wants us to be. But regardless of what you carry, part of action and faith is taking those moments and making sure that the spoken narrative is one that sparks the fire of God's grace and abundance. There's no shame there, no brokenness too much for God. God sees us as endowed with inherent worth. This is worth that is given and cannot change. Worth that can't grow and can't shrink no matter what you do. I believe this with all of my soul. So I had to change how I spoke about myself, both out loud and in my head. Because our words matter. Our words to others and our words to ourselves, they're not only actions in and of themselves, but they are the rudder that leads to other actions. See, our faith compels us to act in word and in deed, in line with who we know Jesus to be. James's letter challenged the church then, and it challenges the church today to understand the implications of what we say, and that when we are focused on our faith, our actions fall in line with that. Perhaps this is why James ends this section with a comment about wisdom. He writes, Who is wise in understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. 
But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. The peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. See, James reminds us that the kind of wisdom we are called to seek is not the wisdom of this world, is not the wisdom that is selfish or self-centered, but it's the wisdom that is subservient, the wisdom that is from God. The entire letter that James wrote is driving home one point, that if we believe it, if we have faith, then we have no choice but to act on it. Our faith compels us to be different, to live different, not just in our stated beliefs, but in how we speak and how we act. Every action should be conformed to God's. Because faith that is truly submissive to Jesus leaves no other option but to live out the life he calls us to. So your challenge for this week is simple. Just listen to what you say. Meditate and pray on your words. What are you saying through them? How are you living out the truth of Jesus through them? Where are your words misaligned with the faith that you profess? How are your words affecting your view of God's other children? Because what we say matters to others and ourselves, And our words should be aligned to our professed faith. And that's why James challenges us to mean what we say. Let us pray. God, we come before you and we lift up our voices. We lift up our tongues, Lord, and we acknowledge that something so simple as aligning the words we speak with what we believe can be so challenging. And we can fail over and over again. But God, we pray that as we exit from here, as we go through this week, that you change us and work in us, that you allow us to be in tune with the words we are saying, to, to think about what those mean and how those impact ourselves and those around us. As we think about what it means to live out the life you've called us to. And these things we pray. Amen.